keep them in your Bible and they're small or uh, handy. So help yourself to those. Uh, and you can see where we are this morning. We're down on uh, in which book? Luke. Luke. What chapter? 19. 19. And we're uh, down here in starting at verse 28 and continuing on down through 48. Uh, incredible passage. Just incredible. Um, so incredible that we dare not approach it without the bended knee or at least the bended heart. So let's do that. Lord, we uh, bow in your presence and we ask that um, you quicken us. There's so much here uh, in these verses. Uh, We just pray that we might gain and be quickened individually from um, for what is here uh, and find application for ourselves personally and uh, we just pray that the spirit of God would quicken us all and enable us to give and to receive from this passage in Jesus name Amen Now, we can't spend a lot of time uh, in all segments of uh, the passage, but let's at least try to read through most of it anyway. Uh, There's a lot we could talk about in regard to much of this, but I I want us to focus on uh, just certain things. But it starts out and it says, when he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And uh, going up, uh, he uh, certainly was doing. Uh, Luke really uses the the word, uh, rightly uses the word going up or ascend for the journey of Jesus to Jerusalem in a distance of about 17 to 20 miles Jesus was traveling from where was he traveling from? Jericho Jericho, right he was traveling from Jericho which was 800 feet below sea level so he's down in what they call a rift. This thing extends clear down into into Egypt. 800 feet below sea level up to Jerusalem. Anybody have any idea of the elevation of Jerusalem? 2,800 feet. Yeah, between 25 and 2,800 feet. So about about 3,000 plus feet. And so it was a little bit, little bit climb, little bit climb. So coming up to Jerusalem, see if we get this. Uh, so um, 
they come up. And it came to pass when he drew, drew near Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet that he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village opposite you where as you enter you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So they went their way. So those who were sent went their way and found it, just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, why are you loosing the colt? Colt. And they said, the Lord has need of him. So they brought him to, brought him to Jesus. And uh, we'll uh, pick that up in just a minute. So, um, so as they came near to Bethphage, now it's <coughs> thought that Bethphage was kind of a precinct to Jerusalem, laying just outside on that hillside that goes up to the Mount of Olivet, and at this time of the year, it was covered with tents. It was covered with campers. Uh, there was just uh, no room in the inn. <laughs> uh, tens of thousands of people were swarming into Jerusalem, coming into Jerusalem for which feast? Passover. The Passover. This is uh, an annual gathering and all around uh, Jerusalem, they were camping, and they were uh, uh, just. Uh, and, and Bethphage is, is felt to be one of the uh, uh, the environs of uh, Jerusalem, the outlying area. And uh, Bethany was a little farther up the hill, in fact, a couple of miles away from Jerusalem. So. They were in the vicinity of the mountain called Olivet. So he sent out uh, two to find this colt. Now a lot of things could be said about the colt. First, we know it was redeemed because of the uh, if if it wasn't redeemed, then the the firstborn of the colt would have had its neck broken. So it must have been redeemed. But uh, there's a lot that could be said here with regard to the cult and, and the, the implications and background. But uh, I'm going to leave it with this and, uh, not, and just pass over some uh, tiny tidbits that we could share with regard to the cult and the owners and just one thing uh, for your consideration it says uh, but as they were loosing the cult the owners of it said to him why are you loosing the cult and what was the answer the Lord has need of it the Lord has need of it and it's interesting that the word for owners is the same word that there for Lord. 
the lords of it, and uh, the Lord has need of him. Uh, same word, an elevated meaning, obviously, with regard to its second instance. Uh, the other, the other thing is, is that's interesting about this is, uh, so they brought brought the colt and its mother. Does it say anything about the mother? Pardon? I don't think it is. No, not not here, but over in Matthew, the mother of the colt uh, is mentioned. So there were the mother came along, obviously uh, had a calming effect on this unbroken, unridden. Uh, young donkey. Um, why does Matthew refer to that? Well, we'll get to that in a little bit in um, Zechariah 9.9 the prophecy concerning that uh, speaks of that. Uh, So as they brought the colt to Jesus, what did they do then? What does the text say? They what? Put their coats on him. Put their coats on him for a saddle. And then they brought him to Jesus and they threw their own clothes on a colt. And they set Jesus on him. So Jesus sat on the clothes that they had thrown upon the donkey. Now that's interesting in a sense um, because the word here in verse 35 where it says and they threw their own clothes on the colt that word is only occurs one other time in the New Testament. They threw their clothes, they cast their garments on the and the other place is can you think of a place where it talks about casting something casting all your your what yeah casting all your cares upon him so here we have Jesus sitting on the garments that they had put up, thrown upon him. And here we are invited over in, in Peter, I think it's First Peter 5, 7, uh, we're told, uh, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. So the question is, is Jesus sitting on your cares? Interesting. It's there in the Word. And uh, as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Now, here's this mob of people, and it's a mob. It's a great number of people 
coming up to Jerusalem to observe the Passover. Uh, finding accommodations, getting set up, but they're coming from Jericho, which is one of the routes to the uh, one of the main routes to Jerusalem as they came down from Galilee. They spread their clothes on the road. And, and we read in the other Gospels that there were some that apparently came out from Jerusalem uh, bringing palm branches. And we read that in the in the other synoptic or in the other Gospels. Now, in verse uh, thirty-seven, it says, "Then as he was he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples." began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So here's Jesus riding on this young donkey coming into the city. Now, he's coming in as a king. Verse 38 says, Blessed is the, what? Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, this is, a, this is an Old Testament quotation. I think referring back uh, to Psalm 118. Uh, and we'll... Uh, refer to that in just a little bit. Uh, back to it. Um, but when a king came in war, he usually rode a horse. But if he came into a city riding on a donkey, he came actually demonstrating peace. Peace. Um, let's have a little quiz here. Fill in the blank. Okay? The Lord will give strength unto his people. The Lord will bless his people with blank. Okay? For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and blank and joy in the Holy Ghost. Through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high has visit, hath visited us, to give light to them that sit in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of blank. Okay, glory to God in the highest and on earth blank. Goodwill toward men. Blank, I leave with you my 
blank I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. What goes in the blanks? Peace. Peace. And uh, you can have a copy of that after here when we're through. Uh, that little fill-in quiz. So he he's coming in peace. Is that what those that were following were they looking for that? Yeah, but what was going to bring peace? War. Subdue the Romans. Kick them out. So their conception of his coming, they they probably figuratively, figuratively felt that he should be coming on a on a great uh, war horse. <laughs> so, um, but they are rejoicing because of the mighty works they had seen. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in highest. And what is the response on the part of the leadership in verse 39? Shut up! (laughs) And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They're attributing too much to him. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it. Um, I think think it's uh, Randall Price that's written a book called Stones Cry Out from a little different angle of uh, how archaeology verifies the events of the gospel. But he says if they should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. And eventually those stones would cry out when the Romans invaded the city and took it apart. Now we read here, now as he drew near, he saw the city, and what did he do? According to uh, verse 41. He wept. What's that recall you? What what uh, do you recall uh, him weeping previously? Just just not long before. Yeah. It says uh, you know the so-called shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. Well, there's a difference between the weeping here and Lazarus when he wept at Lazarus' tomb. He shed tears at Lazarus' tomb. But here he cried. 
this is a much more intense word for weeping. There's several, several uh, words that are used for for weeping, but here he uh, there may have been audible. This was audible weeping, a very strong. In fact, it, it's a word used for when people were uh, mourning uh, the passing of a dead person. Uh, mourning out loud. Professional mourners were even hired on, on, on some of these occasions to make lots of noise. But he was so struck with, uh, with this. Uh, let me share with you um, a... Um, a quotation concerning this grief that Christ had as he was approaching Jerusalem and his grief over Jerusalem. Um, Jody Dillow writes and he says, another illustration is found in Christ's grief over Jerusalem. As he approached the city at the beginning of the last week of his life, he wept in anticipation of the terrible judgment that would befall its people in A.D. 70. And uh, the description of the count of what took place, um, there were at least a million Jews that died uh, at when Titus invaded and overthrew the city. When he approached, he saw the city and wept over it saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for, what's the word? Peace. For the day shall come upon you when your enemies will surround you and hem you in on every side. That's in verses 41 through 43. And then in Matthew, he, refer, he refers to this and he says, How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. Matthew 23, verses 37 through 38. Jesus weeping. Dillo continues and said, we must never view God as cold and uncaring when he carries out these punishments. The father's heart weeps with the full knowledge of what his child is about to undergo and to forfeit. We must remember that the duration of this punishment is momentary when we experience the chastisement and the hand of the Lord upon us is momentary and subsequent remorse does not last unto eternity. He talks about this, uh, the hand of the Lord upon us when he deals with us in chastisement. He says when we arrive in eternity future, Everyone's cup will be full. But the cups will be of different sizes. 
when you get there, you'll have a full cup. But the cups will be of different sizes. And what Lyle brought last week, and I regret I didn't get a chance to hear it because it hasn't been posted to the website yet. But that has some bearing on the size of our cups. But we'll all be there. Everyone's cup will be full. But the cups will be of different sizes, he says. So, what is it then in this text that is of such a, what he says, that they are remiss in relation to? Well, in verse 42, he says, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this, what? Your what? Your day. Can anybody take a guess as to what he's referring to there? Your day. You want to know what the what this date is? I'll give you the date. It's March thirtieth, thirty-three A.D. You say, how do you come up with that? How do you come up with that? How do you think? How, how can we come up with that day? Got any ideas? Well, there's a prophecy that gives us that date. Since I can't get online and get my Bible program open, I guess I'll just have to revert to the uh, the good old brick and mortar text itself. What 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 prophecy do you think would give us this date? Any ideas? Daniel, possibly. What in, in relation? Seventy out. weeks. Pardon? The 70 weeks. Yeah. The 70. In what chapter? In Daniel? Nine. Daniel chapter 9. Um, down here in, in this uh, prophecy in chapter 9, um, the 70 weeks, of, he says, if you would have known this your day. Well, the... Um, this is this day, this incident, which only Luke records. You'll only find this in Luke, referring to this your day. This refers back to the 70 weeks. This is the fulfillment of the 69th week. Nine twenty-five of Daniel. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild and to build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. That's 69 weeks. This is the conclusion of the, uh, the 69th week. Uh, it, and it's on the day 
of Christ's triumphal entry uh, into Jerusalem. Now, a number, and I meant to bring the book that where this is elaborated on. Uh, Harold Honer uh, at uh, Dallas Theological Seminary, he's with the Lord now, just recently went to be with the Lord, um, wrote a wonderful book on chronological aspects of Jesus Christ's life. And one of the chapters in it has to do with the ninth chapter of um, of uh, the book of Daniel, and he spells this out. And he goes through all of the, he goes through all of the uh, dates and all of the information regarding this. And uh, I would highly, re- if you want to dig in, and uh, and uh, learn more about that, that's the finest thing. Now I know you, uh, Dave Mealy has referred to the coming prince. And that, that's, uh, but uh, this is this is a much more contemporary, and, and I I believe it to be a much more accurate book. Um, um, let's see, um, Alva J. McLean also did a booklet or a pamphlet booklet on this, and it's very good. But uh, uh, it's found that he was off by a year, so. Anyway, this, this is a spe- this is specified. If you would have known this your day, could they have known it? Could they have known it? What what is significant about this? Uh, this prophecy, in regard to uh, verse twenty six. 926, and after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be what? Cut off. off. But not for himself. They would have known, they should have known that he had to die. They should have known. Two things they should have known. That this, this was the Messiah. He's coming and presenting himself. And that ultimately it's going to die. Not he's not going to conquer the Romans. So what they were looking for is uh, was something other. Uh, Horner can yet continues and he says, as predicted in Zechariah nine nine, Christ presented himself to Israel as Messiah the King for the last time, and the multitude of the disciples shouted loudly by quoting from a messianic psalm. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118.26 um, This occurred on Monday, Nisan 10, March 30th, and only four days later, on Friday, Nisan 14, April 3rd, AD 33, Jesus was cut off or crucified. Um, Now, I want to share with you, uh, in fact, let's pass these out. Can somebody... uh, 
this is a Christ goes into the temple and he uh, the temple area and he has a conflict with um, who? Money changers. So what's going on anyway? He went into the temple and he began to drive out those who bought and sold in it. So things are going to get stirred up. Now, the area, the, the uh, let me point out to you the, the different areas. There's the uh, court of the priests, um, and then there's the court of Israel, a little farther outside. Only the priests were allowed into the area of the uh, court of the priests. And then the court of Israel, just outside that. And then the treasury and the women's court, outside of that, all within the sacred enclosure. So outside of the sacred enclosure is the court of the Gentiles. So where were the money changers? They were out in the court of the Gentiles. Now, when uh, it's thought, and some indicate that it was Caiaphas who had permitted this money changing to go on in the temple environs. Prior to that, it took place outside of the temple precincts totally. Now, the money changing was necessary because if you came in with any coinage or money in order to uh, pay a what was what was the annual tribute that each Israelite had to pay the temple tax is what it was they had to pay that yearly so if you came to pay the temple tax or if you were going to purchase an animal for sacrifice or offering, you had to pay for it with temple money. Um, it's called the silver uh, Tyrian or something like that. It was minted up in Tyre, and that was the uh, that was the only acceptable. So if you brought in coinage that was other. Uh, you had to change it. It had to be changed into temple money. So uh, with that, they... Uh, but uh, here they were, right in the environments, in the court of the Gentiles. And they were uh, exchanging, doing all of this commerce and this changing. And, and, uh, and this is what precipitated Jesus uh, uh, driving them out. He, now, he had done this earlier in John's Gospel, uh, but you can well bet that um, what did they do after they were driven out? 
after Jesus left. They cut the tables back up and got, went back in business. This is commerce. This is this is big money. And uh, so he uh, and he, verse 47, teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything for all the people were very attentive to hear him. So he drove the money changers out and created a space for him to teach in the temple area. Well, they were blind. Blindness in part has happened to Israel, Paul says over in chapter 11 of Romans. They were blind. But, you know, I... I um, there, there's a kind of blindness that is taking place among evangelicals uh, even today. And, uh, I want to read you something and I want you to have a copy of this and to see some of the kind of blindness that is taking place uh, and I want you to follow along with me on this. And with this, we will. Have you ever seen the scrambled words test? You're presented with a paragraph of text, and even though the words are scrambled, you can still read it without too much effort. Even though the letters are in the wrong order, your mind can still figure out what each word is and make connections based on context, allowing you to read the text without too much trouble. And here's a, here's a um, URL where you can go and um, you can see what this is and an example of it. It seems like our minds are capable of reading meaning into a text that isn't literally there. That's bad news when it comes to Bible study. I've been trying to keep my theological language biblical to avoid extra biblical terms that might have theological baggage that it obscures the meaning of Scripture for me. It's hard. Several factors have inspired this, one of which is all the people who kindly write, email, or call up the ministry to tell us that we're wrong. Sometimes I stand corrected. Oftentimes I'm left perplexed. People often quote proof texts against free grace theology that have nothing to do with the point they're trying to make. Here's an example. I can't tell you how many people have told us that simply believing in Jesus' promise of life is not enough to be saved by quoting James 2.19. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. James 2.19. So what I usually ask, and they answer, usually answer, well that means you can't just believe with your head and be saved. That's what the demons do. 
And if you're going to be born again, you need a living faith, one that works. Don't call me simple, but so far as I can tell, James 2.19 doesn't say any of those things. It literally does not mention head faith versus heart faith. And you've probably heard that, head faith and heart faith, rag two. There's 12 inches between the head and the heart. It literally does not mean head faith versus heart faith. Heart faith, the promise of life and about how it's not enough to simply believe in Jesus' promise to be born again. It certainly doesn't say the demons believe in Jesus' promise of eternal life. And yet people quote this verse to me all the time to prove that grace message is wrong. The plain words of the verse say that the people in question as well as the demons, believe that God is one. That is, they are monotheists. You see that? Monotheism is the only belief being spoken about here in this text. So how does the idea that people and demons are monotheists prove it's not enough to believe in Jesus' promise of life to be eternally saved? How does it prove there's such a thing as head faith versus heart faith? I have no idea. But if you're going to get a handle on what James 2 means, you might start by recognizing the monotheism detail and start rethinking it from the ground up. What's the lesson here? Before you quote a verse to support your position, and I'm preaching to myself now, ask yourself the question, does this verse literally say what I think it says? You'd be amazed at how many times you've read details into a text that were not actually there. Your mind is an amazing tool that can make sense out of scrambled letters. Just be sure it doesn't also make nonsense by scrambling scripture. There's a kind of blindness among both Calvinists and Arminians that is uh, incredible to prop up their position. I pray God that we will not be blind to the truth of God's word in its many aspects of respect. The spring blew trumpets of color. Her green sang in my brain. I heard a blind man groping, tap, tap with his cane. I pitied him in his blindness, but can I boast I see? Perhaps there walks a spirit close by who pities even me. A spirit who hears me tapping the five-cents cane of mine amid such unguessed glories that I am worse than blind. Let's pray. Lord, help us, we pray, to have our eyes open to the fullness of your truth and not be blind to the wondrous insights 
that are there in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Are we going to sing a song or are we done? We are going to sing while uh, Don does his thing. Okay. But first we have to pass out the song. Would you pass out the song? And I want to make sure. There's extra copies up here of everything. So. Yeah, I put the next one up there. Okay. Yeah. We're only going to have one song because of time. That's all I brought. Actually, I have one in the guitar. It's been there for three Sundays. I haven't brought it out yet because the timing hasn't been just perfect. But it will be. <coughs> song if they ever watched watched a gospel hour on TV or whatever it was gospel shows. I'll hum the tune
Yes, we, just to keep from littering the place. <laughs> yeah, in fact, will the collector stand for it? The, the great collector, yes. The collector and disseminator of many things. Okay, good job, thank you.